is Bad Boys and Beyond with your hosts, Mike Payton and Keith Black Trudeau. The game's over and the Pistons have won the world championship. All right, Keith. Uh, well, welcome to Bad Boys and Beyond. I'm your host, Mike Payton. Keith Black Trudeau, obviously, with, with us as your other host, co-host. Uh, we're going to do something a little interesting here. I have been fooling around with ChatGPT all weekend. And I have asked ChatGPT to write an action movie about John Spider Sally. And I am going to re- read the synopsis for this film. This is what it came up with. The film is called uh, Full Court Fury, which is great. It's a nice the, title. Yeah, I like it. Uh, in the crime-ridden streets of Detroit, John Sally, now retired from professional basketball, struggles to find his place in a world. As struggles to find his place in a world, as he witnesses the city's decline, he learns that a powerful crime syndicate known as the Black Court is planning to take over Detroit and erase its rich basketball history. Realizing that his former teammates and the spirit of the bad boys era still burn within him, Sally embarks on a mission to reunite the legendary Piston squad. He convinces Isaiah Thomas, Joe Dumars, Bill Lambeer, and Dennis Rodman, among others, to join him in the battle to save their city. As the team gathers, the they uncover a web of corruption that extends into the highest levels of government. The Black Court, led by the ruthless mob boss Victor Viper Vasquez, say that three times fast, Victor Viper Vasquez, plans to host an underground basketball tournament with rigged matches aiming to demoralize Detroit's basketball-loving community. Jokes on them were already demoralized. (laughs) With their unmatched skills and fierce determination, Sally and his team train relentlessly to prepare for the ultimate showdown against Vasquez's hand-picked team of mercenaries. Each player brings their unique talents, combining explosive offense, impenetrable... Impenetrable... Why can't I say this word? Impenetrable. Impenetrable. Jesus. Defense. An indomitable spirit to reclaim the glory of Detroit's basketball. As the cinematic tournament begins, the Pistons face off against Vasquez's team in a series of high-octane action-packed basketball matches. The games feature intense slam dunks, skillful ball handling, and heart-stopping buzzer beaters. Along the way, Sally and his teammates confront personal demons, rekindle friendships, and find the strength to rise above their past mistakes. And that's that. It's kind of cliche, but hey, for a, for a computer-generated script that's or a synopsis, that's pretty good. I like it. I, I'd watch it if they I mean it. I, I think I think they just missed a big opportunity to not make Tom Gore as the, the mob boss, but yes. Other than that, I, I, I think we're pretty good. Yes. <laughs> I would have loved if yes, if Tom Gores would have somehow been the bad guy in all of this, that would have been that would have been great. Um all right. Well, obviously we're covering John Sally today. We were gonna do it last week, but we decided that we wanted to be uh, completely disappointed in public and we covered the uh the draft lottery and then keith 
decided he wanted to piss off every Pistons fan in Detroit, went on Twitter and uh, shared his true feelings. And that was, that was I didn't quite say a, anything that I didn't say on the show. I know and that, but that was fun to watch. <laughs> you uh, yeah. Every, everybody was coming for Keith's head last week, um, but you handled it. You handled it well, I think. Um, and no, you, yeah, you're absolutely right. You said exactly what you said on the show and you weren't alone. There were other people who were saying the same exact thing. So uh i'm 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 not nearly as upset as i was last week especially after i sat down and watched a lot of cam whitmore film i got kind of yeah. excited about this guy he, he he may not be available at five but we'll see yeah well they're probably gonna wind up with a thompson twin but we'll we yeah we'll see we'll see uh Last night, we're talking about this on a Tuesday. Uh, last night being Monday, the Nuggets closed out the Lakers in, uh, in somewhat dramatic form. There was a really interesting game. At this at the end of the first half, it seemed like, okay, the NBA was like, uh, for the people who are conspiracy theorists and thinks that things are rigged, it that the end of the first half was like, foul on the Nuggets, foul on the Nuggets, foul on the Nuggets, foul on the Nuggets. It seemed like the NBA was doing everything they could to keep this, the Lakers in this thing. And then, then the Nuggets just came back in the second half and were unstoppable. And now we are in a place where suddenly uh, a LeBron James retirement is being discussed. Keith, uh, you, you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I, I'm not buying it. I, I'm not even considering the thought of buying it, it's been no secret to anybody. LeBron James wants to play in the NBA with his son, and that can't happen for another two years at minimum. So to me, this is just him strong trying to strong-arm the Lakers into making more major changes and selling out their whatever draft stock they have left, to trying to go and get another piece that's going to help him win another ring. And you know what? I honestly don't blame LeBron for that. Uh, Le- Le- LeBron is as good or better than any 38-year-old that's ever played the game, uh, even at this stage in his life. He'll be 39 next year. I don't think he's going to be appreciably worse unless he suffers some kind of a major debilitating injury. I, I don't blame him for wanting to go out a, as a winner, but you know, things being what they are, the, the Lakers are going to have to seriously <laughs> pay a lot of money for Rui Hachimura, whose career they completely resuscitated. Yeah. But in the process, they've now raised his asking price. Uh, same goes for our Austin Reeves, who everyone in the Pistons community remembers that, that Troy wanted Austin Reeves, but didn't want him enough to draft him because he wouldn't agree to sign a, a two-way contract and people forget like he could have just drafted him anyway and signed him to a, a regular deal but apparently he didn't want him that bad so it's good that Troy picked him out but you know Troy didn't want him badly enough I guess in any case he's looking at what uh 15 20 million dollars a year with the Lakers Easily. now they're already yeah. paying LeBron they're already paying Anthony Davis they have no cap room so what what are what player are they going to go and get in free agency? Is Kyrie Irving going to sign there for five dollars? I don't see it. So I I think LeBron is kind of stuck where he's at. Unfortunately, I, I know a lot of people would like to see him uh, make one last uh, run at a ring, but I think maybe this year might actually have been his his best shot. 
Okay. Well, here's my take. Retire. It's over. Look, I, I, everybody's going to say, hey, Mike, he had 40 points last night. He he played 47 minutes. Okay. Uh, that's great. And I'm not saying that LeBron is a bad basketball player. I'm not saying that. He's the, probably the, he's the second greatest player of all time in, in, in my book. Michael's always going to be number one. I'm sorry. I, we're not having that debate today, though. Uh, and, and he's got, he's got all these records. He broke Kareem's record this year, as we all know. Um, what does this guy have left to prove? What is the point? I, I, everybody sees a 40, 40 points last night and they see 47 minutes. You know what I saw all series long? I saw a guy pulling up from three a million times because he didn't want to drive. I, I, I saw a guy trying to pull off a superstar dunk and losing control of the ball. I, I, I saw, I see a guy who is tired. He's tired. It it's like you could you could even even a tired LeBron James can do incredible things. But how long before he's too tired and that and that it doesn't matter anymore? And like I just I just feel like this is this is your time where and I felt the same way about Tom Brady. It's like you 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 should pick your spot to walk away and you should walk away now. You're at the top of you were at the top of your game. You went to the Western Conference Finals. You have all these championship rings already. You got the biggest record in the NBA, the one that everybody's gunning for, everyone hopes to have in their career when it's all said and done. What do you have left to prove? At this point, it's only going to go from, it's only going to be negative from here because he's only going to be viewed as a guy who's going to be holding a team hostage. Uh, He's only going to be viewed as a guy who's just waiting around for his son to show up. By the way, we don't even know if Bronny's good enough to be in the NBA. Uh, the the scouting report is constantly mixed on him. Like he may come to the league, but he's not going to be like the number one pick. He's you know I, I don't know. I, I feel like he's putting a lot of pressure on his own son. Uh, I, I don't know. Then 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 what? When his son comes in the league, he's going to hold whatever team he currently plays on hostage in order to get traded to that team. It's just it it can only look bad for LeBron from here on out. I just think he should just he should walk out on top, get all the accolades that he deserves, go into the Hall of Fame first ballot, and just go go do the movie thing that you want to do. Go go be a producer. Do all these things that you you want to do. I I just don't see why why you would want to continue to play basketball at this point. The All Lakers right, so aren't getting any better, like you said. Yeah, so so this is where I get a little, and, and I remember going through this with uh, Michael Jordan's uh, comeback 20-some years ago with the Wizards. And the, the, there were a lot of similar complaints that, well, what are you doing this for, Michael? You walked away at the top of your game as the MVP. Uh, but the thing is, it's really difficult uh for me to put myself in the place of someone telling a professional athlete that they should end their, their life's career. Like this right. is, this is the pinnacle of what you worked for your whole life. And once you stop, there's, you're not coming back, especially LeBron at age 38. If he retires and he, he's gone from the game for a year, then he's not coming back. That's just not realistic. So yes, I, I think from the perspective of the, the public, the media, uh, the fans, you you want to see your heroes or your icons 
you know, go out on top because that's what you want for their legacy. But their legacy, the player himself determines what he wants his legacy to be, not, not, not any of us. And if LeBron James is still capable of playing basketball, and I said this with Vince Carter when Vince Carter stuck around forever, and he he worked his ass off to stay in shape just so he could come off the bench and play 10 minutes a game for the Atlanta Hawks when the Atlanta Hawks were terrible. Uh, if LeBron James wants to keep working at it and keep himself in basketball shape and keep himself as a legitimate NBA player, uh, it is not up to me, I, I think, or anyone but LeBron to tell him when he should stop. If he's good enough to, if he, if he's good enough to earn his spot in the league, I, he should have it as long as he can hold on to it or Agreed. he decides until he decides to, to let it go. Uh, as far as playing with his son, I, I think, in fact, I'm sure his contract is structured. So he'll be a free agent when his son is draft eligible. So I think it's going to be as simple as whatever team drafts his son, he's just going to sign there for the minimum. And then I think that in in my mind, I think in his mind, that's going to be his his farewell is whatever shape he's in, just playing one year in the NBA with his son. And I think he'll retire after that. I, I think that's I, I think in LeBron's mind, that's probably his his happy ending uh, between then and now. Uh, I, I think he's probably he probably wants to win. I just I don't think L.A. is in any position to be to make any major improvements. Uh beyond what they were already are. No, I, I, you know, you make, you make great points. I agree. And the player owes me nothing. He owes none of us anything. He can do whatever he wants to do. I just, I just, and I look, I, it's no secret. I've never been a big LeBron James fan, but I don't want to see this guy character assassinated for a few more years before, you know, like I, I just, I don't know. I, I love to see the player ride off into the sunset. And and I worry that maybe we won't get to do that with LeBron the 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 right way that um you know that that you get to see other players do it. But you know one one interesting thing, and I'll, I'll be quick with this. Uh Kareem Abdul Jabbar was actually uh people forget his last season with the Lakers because he was really, really good up until age, I think 41 or 42. He was a really, really efficient player. I think 41 and then 42, he, he turns 42, uh, his 20th year in the league, his last year with the Lakers and his, his game just fell off a cliff. Uh, he went from being a, a still a, an all-star caliber player in year 19 and in year 20, he was starting pretty much because he was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and there were sports illustrated. I remember, uh, there were a couple of SI articles written, uh, about I think it was called Kareem's Last Stand was the title, and it was a a pretty scathing in, indictment of of his last year in the league, where he was like a ceremonial starter, and he was going around the league getting retirement gifts at halftime from every NBA arena that he was visiting for the last time. And I, I never thought that was really fair. I, I get it, but at the same time, I don't think people remember that today. I, I may be one of ten people on earth that remember that that Kareem's last season was not a catastrophe, but it wasn't up to his standard of play. I think 30-some uh, years later, was it 34 years after his retirement, uh, retirement, I think people just remember Kareem for being, you know, one of the two or three greatest players of all time and a consummate winner. 
as Michael Jordan, certainly no one forgot that he played for the Wizards, but no one is really using that against him anymore either. I think LeBron James, if his career does fall off uh, in year 21 or 22 uh, of his career, I think people are, will certainly use it against him, especially his detractors. But I, I think over time, you know, a decade from now, maybe two, it, people will just remember the best parts about LeBron's uh, legacy, not you know, him hypothetically falling off in his, you know, at age 40. Yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, again, strong points. Can't, uh, can't go against those. So yeah, no, you're, you're probably right. Maybe I'm making too much out of it. Um, so I guess we'll see, we'll see what happens when uh, LeBron and Bronny play for the Pistons in a few years <laughs> and uh, We'll we'll see how that goes. Look, so, someone will jump. Someone will jump on that. I I couldn't say who because it's going to be a couple of years. But someone's going to jump on that. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> okay. Well, tonight, uh, Tuesday, we've got the uh, Heat and Celtics. That looks like a possible closeout game for the Heat. We're going to get a Heat Nuggets finals more more than likely. I don't know. The Celtics might pull off. Something that literally no other team has done before. Uh, but now, now, Owen 150 as of last night, teams yeah. that fell down 03. Only three teams out of 150 have even forced a game seven. All three of those teams lost game seven, but <laughs> it's impossible. It's like near impossible. Uh, they might go back to, to Miami, but we'll, we'll see. I wouldn't want to go back to Miami if I were Boston. Let's just get this thing over with and, uh, and, and Do you start, remember start. the last team that, that came back from 03 to force a game seven? No. One one of your favorite uh, Pistons was was a member of this team. It was 20 years ago. That's why I'm asking. Oh, man. Exactly, exactly 20 years ago. Uh, the Portland Trailblazers, they went down 03 to Dirk and the Mavericks, and they actually crushed them the next three games to force a game seven. And then the Mavericks blew them out because they were at home, but – yeah, Rasheed Wallace, that was like his great, late, last okay. great moment as a, as a blazer. And that was also kind of Zach Randolph's coming out party. But unfortunately, it did not work out for them. Um, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. I, I fully expect Heat to to end it tonight. We'll see where it goes. But I am ready for June 1st, game one, and uh, looking forward to the finals. Yeah, you can take a whole vacation and come back and not miss any basketball. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, that's going to that's gonna do it for that talk. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into our topic today, Mr. John Spider Sally. Keith, take us back in time. Let's go all the way to Georgia Tech. Uh, so yeah, John, John Sally, uh, maybe the tallest Jehovah's Witness ever uh, out of Brooklyn. Uh, six foot 11, extremely long arms, uh, skinny, but not real skinny, uh, very agile. He got the nickname Spider because of his wingspan. Uh, he was recruited to Georgia Tech along with Mark Price. That is a hell of a recruiting class. They started together for four years. Uh, Georgia Tech uh, basketball, not traditionally a powerhouse. They were very, very good uh, for the final three of those four years. Uh, as, as juniors, they nearly got Georgia Tech to the final four. They were beaten in the Elite Eight by by Patrick Ewing and Georgetown. There's no shame in that. And so we, we get to the spring of 1986. 
uh, both Mark Price and John Sally are, are off to the NBA. And John Sally actually goes number 11. Uh, now, the Pistons, a good team at the time already, they do not have a, a high draft pick. But what they did have was Terry Tyler, who went to Sacramento as a free agent, and they worked out a, a very interesting sign-and-trade where the Pistons got to swap draft picks with the Sacramento Kings in 1986. So they got to move up, I think, seven or eight spots in the first round to number 11. And John Sally was just sitting there. And mind you, this is a Pistons team that's coming off getting annihilated uh, defensively in the playoffs by Dominique Wilkins. They were looking for defense, especially at the forward position. And John Sally, the the premier shot blocker outside of Patrick Ewing in college basketball in, in 1986, uh, he he was there. Uh, he was probably the number one guy on Jack McCloskey's board. And somehow, miraculously, they also pull uh, some some kid from uh, some small school in Oklahoma in the second round too. We'll, we'll yeah. do an episode on on him eventually. Um, yeah, that was the interesting thing is the draft class that year. Jack McCloskey's hall was John Sally and Dennis Rodman, but John Sally was the guy getting all the attention. He was the, he, he was the guy playing uh, NCAA tournament games every year. He he was the, the big athletic six eleven kid. Like he was billed as the big draft acquisition. Dennis Rodman was like some guy no one ever heard of. Yeah, it's, it's totally, it's crazy. Um, uh... Obviously, uh, John Sally and Len Bias were were good friends. Um, there's a if you guys want to see any background on that, uh, and and to get some background on the '86 draft a little bit, I would watch the Without Bias Thirty for Thirty. Uh, John Sally's part of that and uh, talks a little bit about his that draft day and and uh, a little bit about Len, obviously too. Um, sad story, but an interesting look back at uh, at a friendship and and uh, and that draft. So. Yeah, and it's the interesting uh, – Mark Price, uh, he went deep in the – I think he was the 25th pick. Like, John Sally went way before Mark Price did, which, which kind of shows what people thought about John Sally in college. Well, and, it's the, this is the big man era. I mean yeah, – it, it is, but you still had point guards going, you know, somewhat high in the draft. Like, I know – Mark Price, there, there were knocks on him not being athletic enough to to play in the NBA, which – you know, were ridiculous, but I you know, like Mark Price was a borderline had a borderline Hall of Fame career if he if his career hadn't been cut down by injuries. And John Sally is is we love him, but he's John Sally. It's just interesting to look back and see that he's drafted so much farther ahead uh, in the draft of Mark Price. Well, uh, John's going to come to Detroit, and he's going to immediately uh, strike a. Uh a big role for himself defensively off the bench for this bad boys team that are, that is just now coming into this whole bad boys era. They're just taking on the moniker and the demeanor of this, uh, this bad boys uh, role or moniker, whatever you want to call it. Um, how does John, how does John uh, fit into that team? How does he become part of the bad boys? What is his, what's his big role there? Well, I, to be honest, I think, I think Jack McCloskey drafted John Sally with the idea that he was going to be a starter because that was the one position on, on one part of that Detroit Pistons team that they could never get figured out was that power forward position. Lambeer was fully entrenched as the, 
the franchise anchor at center. Uh, but they had a revolving door at, at the power forward spot. They had a different starter pretty much every year. And going into that 1986-87 season, they still didn't know. Uh, you had Rick Mahorn, who was still very out of shape, uh, didn't really, wasn't really uh, getting along with the player, the other players on the team or the coaching staff, for that matter. And then you had Sidney Green, who they had brought in, uh, the, the UNLV star. He was the power forward to start the season, but he never, he was just a bad fit all around. So John Sally actually managed to work his way in. He started his fourth game. <laughs> his fourth career game like he, he was in the rotation immediately and they were trying to to sprinkle him in as a as a situational starter uh, just to see how it would go and he never stuck uh mind you he he played well but he he never put up those numbers where he just took ownership of that starting job but he was always in the rotation he was in the rotation from day one you know what's weird keith is when you play for about I don't know, 10, 12 years or however long John played for. And the best game of your career comes in your rookie year. Yeah. And that's what happened with John Sally. Uh, in a late, late season game in April against the Milwaukee Bucks, John goes out and puts up 28 points and 10 rebounds. And that's, I guess I would say that's the best game of his regular season career. I agree with you. Like, yeah, it probably was. Not, like, a, not much of a regular season player, John. And, and that frustrated Chuck Daly to no end. It, it's weird on the team with uh, guys like Bill Ambeer and Rick Mahorn and Dennis Rodman. Uh, Chuck Daly would very openly say that John Sally was the most difficult player he's ever had to coach. Because uh, John Sally had so much ability and he would be a different type of player every night. One one. He, he would always try to block shots on defense. You could always count on him for that. But on offense, uh, one day he'd be invisible. Another day he'd be taking mid-range jumpers. Another game he would be posting up. Another game he'd be filling the fast break. But he would never do all of these things in the same game. He, he, he would just kind of float around and get his points by happenstance, really. And I think that really frustrated Chuck Daly because he thought that – John Sally could average double figure points in the, in the NBA. And he just was never that type of a player. He, he never had the desire to go out and, and stick his nose in there and get baskets. And the Pistons, you know, to their credit, they were so deep, they didn't really need him for that. But I, I think daily, he really wished that he could get some post scoring out of uh, John Sally. And it just never materialized on a, on a day-to-day basis. So it was almost like a motivational tool and even John Sally's talked about this, where Chuck Daly, who was not even the GM, he was he would publicly uh, talk about possibly trading John Sally whenever John Sally was in a slump, just to get him motivated to get going. And that was like the bare minimum of just trying to. I don't want to say effort because I don't think John Sally was ever lacking effort. It was just he didn't have that extra gear and and. Chuck Daly would kept trying to draw that out of him and it never worked. It, it's funny uh, in the 30 for 30, the bad boys, 30 for 30. I always remember this line where uh, Chuck is saying something like uh, we, we, we can't, we can't, we can't allow this many points. If we allow this many points, somebody's getting traded yeah. and he's like, I'm going to leave you. There's I'm going to leave you in Milwaukee, John. There's no comedy clubs in here that you like. 
I just always that 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 really goes along with what with, with what you're saying is that John, John Sally is like constantly on the trade block, but never actually gets moved. And well, he he does, but we'll get to that. Right, eventually. But, yes, but the thing is, yeah, there, there, there's a reason John Sally doesn't get moved uh, while the Pistons are are winning, while they're a contender, is because every postseason, John Sally would bring his his A game. He would bring his best. Uh, even though he would have less minutes, his production would actually be better. In the, the six-year uh, playoff run that he had with the Pistons, his numbers and his production increased in five of them. A couple of them increased significantly. Uh, you you could always count on John Sally to give you quality minutes during the playoffs. Uh, more often than not, he, he would be that, that rim protector. He was the one guy on that bad boys team that was a legitimate rim protector. He filled that he filled that vital role on that team that no one else could really do. And year after year, he he was giving you a significant production significant minutes in you know ten, you know 10 15 he was always the last guy on the rotation whether a nine or ten man playoff rotation he was always the last guy uh to get in but he was always getting in and whether he played five minutes or 25 minutes he was he was giving you good uh good production it's interesting i think the best game he ever played to me was game seven of the 1988 nba finals the, the most pressure-packed situation you could possibly be in. And this is a game where the Pistons are down double figures. Uh, they're getting blown out in the third quarter. Uh, Isaiah Thomas uh, has an ankle swell up like a bowling ball. He can't really exist out there. He's He has to come out of the game. And Chuck Daly throws John Sally in there just to bring in some energy where it's him, Rodman, and, and Lambeer. And not a whole lot of all. It's just Vinnie Johnson taking all the shots, and they go on this massive run and nearly steal the game. It would have been maybe the greatest comeback in finals history. But John Sally for the game had 17 points. Uh, he was the second leading scorer behind Dumars, 10 rebounds, and had a spectacular stuff block of James Worthy uh, in crunch time that would have could have led to a to a game time basket but Dennis Rodman took a ill advised jumper which we won't get into but yeah. the point is you saw John Sally his absolute best in game 7 of the NBA finals and i think that that definitely uh says something well obviously as we know as has been well documented on this show and everywhere else the pistons do not win that series uh but they do win the next two series they win the 89 uh championship and the 90 championship and Sally is on both of those teams um did what what's what's the most memorable moment for for John Sally from those two championships I would say the, the 89 team he had some decent games against Boston and Milwaukee where he scored some points uh off the bench but I, I think to me is when the Pistons lost Rick Mahorn and James Edwards had to move into the starting lineup, and John Sally was almost became like the the de facto backup center because you had Bill Ambeer and James Edwards starting at the same time. I think that's when you really saw uh, John Sally give you give his most consistent production, where he was averaging almost like two blocks per game off the bench. He he was giving you almost three blocks in the playoffs. He, uh, again, off, 
Offensively, he really wasn't giving you a whole lot, but but defensively, I, I think you saw him at maybe his most consistent and most productive on that defensive end. I don't think there's any single game that I can think of. Again, there's there's a couple games. I think the early, uh, like games one and two against Milwaukee in 1989, he was really good, but that was still more of a team thing. It was like no one walked away from that saying, that's the John Sally game. Like, I don't think there ever was really a John Sally game other than that game seven that we just discussed. Well, uh, but I, I do want to add one thing though. The, uh, the, once the, the team kind of fell off and you had players not sticking around and James Edwards was not there anymore in 92 Pistons were still a playoff team, but they had a really thin front court. It was pretty much Lambeer, Rodman and, and Sally uh, with Orlando Woolridge who couldn't guard anybody. So Chuck Taylor hated to throwing him in there. Uh, yeah, John Sally for that first round series loss against the, the league's best front line at the time, the Knicks, uh, averaged 12 points, six rebounds, and three blocks. Uh, he abs he was an absolute uh man in there. He had a, a couple of uh and one dunks on on Patrick Ewing. I can't remember which games they were, but yeah, they were they, he had some highlight reel blocks, highlight reel dunks. Like he was, ne he he never had the build to be a great rebounder, uh. But he had some spectacular plays, and given that that was his last time in a Pistons uniform, I thought that was that was a hell of a way to go out for him. That's nice. Um. Well, yeah, as you mentioned, that's his last time in a Pistons uniform because he will be traded after the uh, <clears throat> 1992 season. He's going to be traded to the Miami Heat. For Isaiah Morris, who was a rookie at the time, and a conditional first-round pick. Keith, I think the Heat fleeced the Pistons a little bit here because Isaiah Morris comes in, plays for exactly 25 games, and then never plays in the NBA again. Do you have any recollection of what that conditional first-rounder went on to be? If any I do. Absolutely, I do. It was a lottery pick. Uh, oh. the, the, the condition, I think it was only top three protected. Okay. I think, yeah, it was in 1993. Uh, I know because I was actually at the draft. It was the 1993 draft uh, that was held at the Palace. Is this Allen Houston? No, that was the the Pistons pick was was Allen Houston. Uh, they were, the pick before that was actually the pick they got from Miami, which was Lindsey Hunter. Oh, okay. Well, then this actually kind of worked out. Then. Yeah, it absolutely. I it was a. I thought it was a steal for the Pistons uh, getting a top three protected uh, lottery pick. Uh, for a guy that wasn't probably interested in sticking around for a rebuild. Okay. Well, hey, Lindsey Hunter, uh, you traded you trade a guy who who helps you get a championship, two championships for a guy who eventually helps you get another championship. So that's that yeah. all worked out. Uh, so John Sally in Miami, he's a you know this is he continues to be a role player. This is he doesn't really. Uh, no. Well, yeah. all right. So, so he, gets a, he gets a lot of starts. I see. Yeah. So yeah, his, statistically, he doesn't offensively. He isn't any better in Miami than he was in Detroit. But I think if you look at the all the minutes that he plays, I think he was the my the point of Miami trading for him was for him to be that veteran leader that's that's seen championships, and he does play a significant role on that. Like he's higher on their rotation, I think, than he ever was in Detroit. Uh, Scoring wise, he doesn't produce a whole lot more. But if you look at 
that Miami team that had Steve Smith and Glenn Rice, he was kind of counted on to be their their defensive anchor. In, in the playoff series, they nearly pull off the first eight, 1-8 upset in NBA history. Uh, Miami's the eight seed. The Atlanta Hawks are the one seed. Uh, John Sally averages 40, 40 minutes per game in that series. And he would he would have averaged more, but I think he fouled out of a couple of them. Uh, but Miami wins two of the first three games. They nearly pull off uh, a historic upset. And a lot of it is, I don't want to say John Sally carried them because, no, Steve Smith and Glenn Rice were carrying them. But John Sally was the guy that I think, he, he was like the glue guy that make, that turned them into a dangerous team. So I, I I do want to credit his his three years in Miami. One one of those three years could have been uh, a historic moment. Okay, all right, fair enough, fair enough. <clears throat> um, so he he's in Miami for a short period of time, and then he gets left unprotected, and he's selected with the twenty fifth pick in the nineteen ninety five expansion draft uh, to the Toronto Raptors. Keith, do you remember which uh, Pistons player was left unprotected in that draft? I'm uh, well. I know uh, Oliver Miller. Yep. Yeah, I, I know Oliver Miller was the guy. I don't know who else was left unprotected, but I, the Pistons could not get get rid of Oliver Miller fast enough. <laughs> the big O. So, but wow. yeah, I know he was the guy that was that was selected off of their roster. Okay. Yep. That's it. But it's interesting, though. Things come full circle. Isaiah Thomas, who's running the Toronto Raptors, winds up drafting John Sally to his team. Not not that it lasts long. No, not long at all. Uh, 25 games, exactly. He he plays in Toronto and then gets a buyout uh, from the team and then takes a couple months off until he uh, eventually comes to the greatest basketball team that ever existed maybe uh is it them or is it the warriors uh i don't know that's up for debate but the 72 win chicago bulls of 1996 he reunites with two other bad boys players and dennis rodman and james uh edwards is also on that team as you might remember um somebody had to hold that chair down uh <laughs> and uh james <laughs> james would hold down uh, that chair very well, and so would John. Uh, John Sally would hold down his chair as well. Uh, do you know who his first point against uh, uh, his first point as a bowl came against? Was it the Pistons? It was the Pistons. He scored exactly one point in a uh, landslide win over the Pistons. Um, it, it was a free throw, um, and uh, that was you know the, his biggest game though came against the Knicks in. Uh, in, in March of that year where he uh, scored 12 points and had eight rebounds in that game. Um, not bad. And then he goes on to, uh, to win another championship actually scores eight points against the, uh, the magic um, in the playoffs. That's not a bad little, wow. that little I, I'm assuming that was game one or game before, because those were both major blowouts. It was uh game four. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, over at halftime. Yep. And then he actually, uh, he 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 does play in the NBA Finals against Seattle, but he doesn't score a single yeah. point. Uh, actually, only shoots the ball one time, and that's in the uh, the the last game of the of the series. Uh, probably they put him in a garbage time, I would imagine. Um, yeah, and that's the kind of interesting thing where John Sally, 
usually players, especially big men uh, at age 30, 31 years old, they're still in their primes uh, at the tail end of their primes, but they're still, you know, at, at the top of their game. And John Sally kind of fizzles out. His career is, is like you said before, the Raptors let him go. An expansion team just let him go. And he, it's not like he was in his late thirties. He was, I think 31. Yeah. And he, he winds up signing a couple of 10 days with the bulls and they think enough of him to keep him around for the rest of the season. And that's great and all, but after that 96 season, you know, they let him kind of walk and there, no one is there to pick up, to pick him up. And he's kind of out of the league at, at 31, which is, it's interesting because we just talked about LeBron James, you know, trying to hold on to his career and, you know, in his 23rd season, you know, where John Sally kind of let his career go uh, in, in his, after his ninth season. So it's it's interesting how these things work out. But, yeah, John Sally is – he's not done with basketball, or maybe basketball is not done with him. Uh, he he goes to, to uh, I think it was Greece for a year after yeah. the Bulls in 97. That lasts, you know, seven games or a month. And, obviously, European teams, uh, the kind of character that John Sally is, uh, if he was frustrating Chuck Daly with a guaranteed contract, I, I cannot imagine how – how uh, a, a strict European coach would have adapted to him. I I think it does not surprise me at all. He didn't last a month. Uh, that's not entirely on him. That's just, you know, his character. There's not, it's not, it's not a slight on his character. It's yeah. just, it, it's different out there. You got to play through, you got to adjust to different rules. And, you know, Sally had one foot out of the league anyway. So he's out of basketball for a couple of years. Uh, Retires. Yep. Yeah. Well, I would say forced, forced retirement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, forced retirement. Because you know when a when a, when when you go to Europe and the European team uh, fires you in, in, after a month, it kind of sends a message to everybody else. Uh, but that all changes when Phil Jackson takes over uh, coaching the Lakers in 1999. Uh, he he calls up his old buddy John Sally and asks, uh, "Hey, would you like to come back up Shaquille O'Neal for a year?" And John Sally agrees, and he actually plays the full season with the Lakers. He only gets in about half the games, doesn't play very often. But the Lakers really don't have a backup center. That's the interesting part about it. Like, the Los Angeles Lakers, like 2000 was Shaq's best year of his career. That was his MVP season. He probably should have had three MVP seasons, but that was the one they actually gave him the award because he was so damn good they couldn't find an excuse not to. And... You know, he was the anchor for that, the, the rock for the Lakers that in whole season. So they never really needed John Sally until the playoffs came. And you see John Sally uh, in, in the signature game of that season, game four of the NBA Finals in Indianapolis, when Shaq fouls out at the end and the game goes into overtime. John Sally is on the floor in overtime <laughs> playing center in this critical, you know, season deciding game for the Lakers. And everyone remembers that that game because it, uh, Kobe Bryant, a young Kobe Bryant, becomes Kobe Bryant for the first time, and he takes over in, in the fourth quarter and wins the game kind of by himself. But it's always funny to go back on that. Uh, whenever the game's on NBA TV, you see it's in overtime, and John Sally's out there uh, posting up and, and fronting in the post. And, like, he almost looks like, what am I doing out here? I don't even know. Yeah, I always thought that that 2000 Lakers team was was 
fun. It was kind of like, um, and, and this happens all the time, but it's like this, it was a bunch of old guys who were like, they, they jumped on the bandwagon. Glenn Rice is on that team. And, uh, AC green is on that team. It's, it's like everybody trying to get one more championship or they're, or they're trying to get their championship ring chasing. I don't know. I just remember thinking like, I was really happy for Glenn Rice <laughs> that night. Um, uh, just to just to see him get a title and but yeah that's gonna that's gonna do it for for John Sally he's gonna retire after that season uh, but then you know uh John Sally doesn't go away he uh becomes an entertainer and which is interesting because he this is a guy who was doing stand-up uh routines in the off season for much of his career he was actually good friends with Eddie Murphy. You see John Sally pop up and all he's in Michael Jackson music videos. Uh, he, he plays a, a role in the bad boys uh, movie franchise. He's in the first one, the second one, he's not in the third one, but he is, he was on the TV show spinoff with uh, Jessica Biel and, um, uh, uh, oh God, Dwayne Wade's wife. Why can't I remember her name? Um, uh, Gabrielle, um, Gabrielle union. Union, Yeah. Yep, he's he's in that, um, and he's he pops up in movies every now and again. And uh, he was in uh, one of my favorite movies, Eddie, um, as the uh, as the team veteran of the New York Knicks in that movie. Um, he's like twenty nine years old in real life at that point, but he's he's the guy who's icing down his knees and ankles, uh, you know, in the middle of the game, and then. Uh, he gets on the best damn sports show period, which is a favorite of, I mean, just about everybody. Like this was, this is one of the early like talk, talk sports shows with like a, you know, celebrities and, uh, and, and, you know, Tom Arnold was on that show. Michael Strahan was on that show. Uh, Really fun show. I, I, I miss that one. Um, Yeah. Chris Rose was the, was, was the lead host. Yep. And, uh, it, it was almost kind of like like inside the NBA, even though inside the NBA has been around for for thirty some years. But it was like kind of what inside the NBA is now. Yeah. Like like the best damn sports show was that in the early two thousands. It was just such a weird cast, though. But yeah, you're right. A, a whole lot of guys that are still doing um, sports today got their starts there. It was like it was it was never uh, it was always doomed to fail because it was on Fox and nobody watches you know, Fox sports shows, unless you're just an unhinged lunatic, uh, you're not going to get ratings uh, talking sports on Fox. No, uh, but yeah, John Sally, uh, John Sally going into show business uh, surprised absolutely nobody. Uh, that that was clearly, that was clearly who he's always wanted to be. Yep. He's, uh, you know, he's also an earnest uh, slam dunk earnest uh, as himself, I believe. Uh, yeah, just a bunch of stuff. Go look at his IMDb page. Check it out. Shows up on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Uh, all kinds of things. John Sally is is he's an actor now. He's less of a less of a, a movie guy and more of an actor. And he's also an activist as well. He's uh he's a big PETA uh, supporter and uh, vegetarian and um, animal rights activist as well. So John Sally keeps keeps busy these days. He's not one of those former basketball players looking for something to do. He's got something to do. 
Um, but now we wrap it up with uh, the questions that we we ask on every one of these player episodes. First, what's John Spider Sally's legacy in the NBA? Oh, I can tell you that right away. So, John Sally, if you look at his career stats, nothing about it impresses you. Yeah. Uh, he's a 6'11 power forward that's never averaged 10 points in his career, never averaged seven rebounds. But but I'll tell you this, he played a major part uh, for six straight uh, playoff runs, runs. Five of them went deep into the playoffs. Two of them resulted in championships. He is, look, he is not a major part of the Detroit Pistons history, but you can't tell the history of the Detroit Pistons without mentioning his name. Uh, he is top 10 uh, in franchise history in both points and rebounds. And he is still third uh, in – I'm talking about in the playoffs. And he he, he is third in the playoffs uh, for block shots in franchise history behind both of the Wallaces. You, yes, uh, his, his statistics are pedestrian. And maybe Chuck Daly always regretted that he could have had better statistics than he did. Uh, but I don't think John uh, Jack McCloskey burned uh, – wasted a draft pick in 1986. I think he got the right guy. And I think John Sally was an important part of the Pistons for exactly as long as he needed to be. And I think that's his legacy is he's a player that always gave his best or at least the best that he could give in the playoffs and never shrunk on, on the, at, at the highest level at, at the largest in the largest stages, he always played well, and I think that's the about what sums up his basketball playing career. Yeah, you know, for me, I just think you know, he's like the one of the funnest basketball players that ever played the game. Like, I'm not not necessarily in terms of like putting up highlights, but just you could always count on uh, this guy being funny, uh, giving a good interview, you know. He, he he's an entertainer man in every in every sense uh of the word like that's that's what john sally is he's not such a just a basketball player he is an entertainer and that is what i will always remember him for um can he play today yes i think he would certainly have to alter the way that he played today because uh his range it was about I don't know, 12, 13 feet at most. And, you know, in today's game, if you're, if you're not going to be a, a dominant role man, which he wasn't, he could certainly catch lobs. He was athletic, but I don't think he, he wasn't necessarily big or strong enough to power the uh, right through other bigs in the lane. So he, he would, I think he would definitely have to be a guy that could hit a corner three at the very least defensively. I think he's damn near perfect for today's game. Uh, you would just move him up to center he was certainly uh, athletic enough and agile enough to switch out on guards uh, when he had to. He was a hell of a rim protector. Uh, he had very, very good shot blocking instincts. I don't know if he would be a starter today or if he would be an end of the bench guy. I just know that there are guys in the league today uh, that are not as good as John Sally was that are, that are getting paid. So I, I'm pretty sure John Sally would have a spot in the league right now. I see him as like a PJ Tucker type of guy, like a, just a, a defender, maybe not necessarily glue guy, but like a guy who 
who, who could play defense? Uh, Brian Cardinal. You want a guy to go out there and take a flop, you know, uh, like that's a good, that's a good John Sally role. Not going to get a lot of points out of him, but he could do something. He can help in some way. Uh, he would not be an all-star or anything like that today, but, um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's going to do it for our John spider Sally. Wait, Keith has something that he needs to say. Yeah. Here, Here's one, uh, here's an actual personal anecdote that I have that I, I would feel this episode would be a major missed opportunity if I didn't talk about this. Uh, John Sally also, while he was in Detroit, actually owned the largest house in the city of Detroit. I, I kid you not, uh, there is this very, uh, very wealthy district called Palmer Woods in, in Detroit. It's, I think it's off of, it was off of what, seven mile, eight mile? It's off Woodward. And Woodward, excuse me. Yeah. And well, Woodward and something else, but I think it was off of Woodward in seven or eight mile. Yeah, anyway, it's Woodward eight. Yeah. So there, there's this district is over a hundred years old. Uh, it has a lot of very wealthy uh, people living there. There's a lot of large houses and the very largest. Uh, if you if you look up on Wiki, it's called the Bishop Gallagher residence because the Detroit Archdiocese owned it for you know a hundred years, and when the bishop that owned it died and or passed away in, in the, I want to say the late 80s. John Sally purchased it for only half a million dollars, reportedly. Uh, he absolutely stole it. Yeah. And I mean, for, for, for a personality like John Sally, this is just like the perfect house. And I actually, believe it or not, I went to John Sally's camp in the summer of 1992, just before. Actually, I think it was just after he got traded uh, to the Miami Heat in the offseason. I was 10 years old at the time. And yeah, at the very last day of camp, you know, he's he's taking questions from all the campers and they're they're all asking him, you know, kid stuff. You know, the, the typical kid stuff, uh, you know, what's what's your favorite shoe? Uh, you know, wh- where do you like to go out to eat in in Detroit or you know, what's your favorite TV show? And, and meanwhile, I'm asking him questions about, you know, his contract status. And, uh, you know, how did how did he feel, you know, losing that game seven in, in L.A.? And after a while, he just he, he just started messing with me. And later that day, or I think it was the next day, because he again, he had gotten traded to uh, Miami. So he had to sell it. He was selling his house and there was this big open house and a whole lot of real estate agents were there trying to get the, the contract to sell the house. And my mother at the time was actually a real estate agent. So she actually uh, came by John Sally's house and dropped me off. And John Sally recognized me from the camp that we had just had the day before. So he actually gave me, there was a little roped off section where like his private rooms were, but understand I'm going to, to go through the uh, highlights of, the, of this estate, uh, 40,000 square feet. Uh, so I had a full run of the place other than like John Sally's, like, just like private rooms in like a walled off section. But I, I, he just let me walk around and, and take a look, but, uh, 62 rooms, uh, it had an elevator, uh, being owned by the Detroit Archdiocese. It will not surprise you that it had its own 62 pew chapel. Uh, pretty much all of the windows were stained glass. Uh, it had 12 fireplaces. 
uh, seven porches, its own wine cellar. Uh, it had two wall-sized safes that I noticed. Uh, it was, I, I'm trying to impress on how enormous uh, <laughs> this house was. Like I, I walked around for maybe, I, I wandered around for maybe two hours and I, I still didn't look at every single room because there's just so much stuff to look at in there. Uh, but it, yeah, at the end of the day, uh, he gave me one of his uh, old Detroit practice jerseys. He was a pretty nice guy. But yeah, that's that's just my little um, anecdote about me <laughs> uh, walking over to John Sally's house uh, just out of nowhere. That's wow. Uh, I wouldn't even know what to do with a house that big. I, I sixty-two bedrooms. I, I mean, I just I just don't own enough stuff to put things in those rooms um i don't know you could still see this house it, uh if you if you drive over to that neighborhood you can't miss it i we don't know i'm not going to give away the address somebody might live there but if you want to drive around the the outside of that house and, and uh check it out it's it's still there you can't miss it it's in a, a beautiful neighborhood a lot of frank lloyd uh right houses and stuff in there um yeah uh great house and that's a that's an awesome story, uh, but again, that is going to do it for our John Sally episode. So next week uh, we've got another great episode for you. We are going to be doing the 2007 NBA mock draft, uh, redraft rather, and uh, that will be our 49th episode. Our 50th episode is coming up, and it is a huge, huge episode that people have been asking for. Can't wait to get to that. But first, our 49th episode the 2007 NBA redraft. We will see you guys there next week.